Hello everybody, this is a SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Thomas Otter and uh, Dave Kellogg. Our special guest today is Dirk Reyer, who is a uh, professor at a university in Germany called FIU. And uh, Dirk, maybe you start off by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your, your, uh, your background. Hey Thomas, yeah, happily so. Uh, so my name is uh, Dirk Riele. I'm a professor of computer science at FAU or University of Erlangen and I I'm a software engineer by training with a specialization in open source uh, software these days. I used to work in industry until 2009. My last job was with SAP Research in the Silicon Valley, but now I'm squarely in Germany, uh, where I've been a professor for the last 10 years. Everything open source, everything building software products. And, And you also teach product management a bit, don't you? Oh, yes. So that is part of my perspective on building products. Most professors in Germany you talk to, if they have industry experience, it's consulting. I actually do focus on building products. Cool. And you're involved with startups, a couple of startups as well, and, and, and quite active in the, in, the German, uh, in the German startup scene as well. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's a, Germany is a fabulous place to get public funding. Uh, say you don't have product market fit yet, so you don't have to or don't want to scale, doesn't make sense. And uh, from our research and from other people's research, there's a big pipeline all the time. So yes, I'm trying to motivate our research being practical and turn it into startups. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So so the topic today is is um, is open source with an emphasis on product management in, 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 in open source. And I, I think we're going to split this into two into two parts. I'm going to start off with a lot of idiot questions, you know, for people that, that don't really understand what open source is and how it relates to product management. We'll do that for a few minutes. And then um, Dave has um, lots more sophisticated questions uh, about some of the latest trends in terms of, you know, what's going on with the move to cloud? How does that impact open source? What are some of the dynamics in, in, in modern open source uh, uh, licensing? But maybe I'll start off with a, with, a, with a very simple question, you know, if you're a product manager, what's different about open source? What, how do you need to think about open source differently from, from say, uh, uh, building, uh, building proprietary software? What are, the, what are the fundamental differences and things that maybe a, a, an early PM needs to be aware of that are, that are quite different about um, uh, open source compared to proprietary software? Dirk, you're on mute. Dave, you're not on hey, mute. Hey, Dad. Dirk's on mute. I'm sure Dirk's having a great soliloquy right now. Yeah. Um, you can see he's new to Clubhouse. He's got his little, uh, I don't know what that is. But uh, hopefully, Dirk, if you can hear us, you got to unmute. Dirk, you need to unmute, bud. Dirk is still muted. All right, Dave, you have a go at that one. What does a product manager, what, what do you think a product manager needs to do, what's to think about differently about open source? Let's start off on Dirk until Dirk can figure out how to unmute. Sure. Once you get Dirk back. Uh-oh, we lost Dirk entirely. Uh-huh. Um, so look, my take on this question, I mean, and I'm not sure about this statement, but I like to probe this statement, which is I think that um, open source was the original PLG software. Um and in my open source roots go back to University Ingress back in 1980-something, <laughs> where it, uh, the, the, the father of Postgres, if you will, or the parents of Postgres, uh, was open source Ingress. 
And uh, to me, the, the idea has always been you want to build a product that's easily adoptable, right? Easily usable by the intended audience, by the way, right? MongoDB is easily adoptable if you're a database developer. Um, so to me, that's the biggest single difference. It's not unlike PLG. And, and that was going to be one of my questions for Dirk uh, once we get him online. Okay, yeah. Ah, here he comes. Dirk, you're, 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 you're on mute. But now yes, you're not on I mute. I think I... <laughs> so I apologize. I can give you the perfect excuse to poke fun at open source because the only explanation of what, ha what has happened is that I'm on the Android version of it and it just crashed my phone. <laughs> so, ah, okay. Ah, so yes. So, 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 so Dirk don't, doesn't only um, uh, uh, lecture in, in open source. He actually lives and, 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 and breathes it. He's the only person I know that uses like um, uh, Libra for, for, for developing slides. So he really does live the, he really does live the dream. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, my first question, Dirk, now that we got you back is, is, mm -hmm. is, you know, You're a, you're a product manager just starting out and, you know, you're at university, you heard all about, you heard a bit about PM, you're working for a company that's, you know, maybe done some proprietary software. What do you have to think about differently about open source? Uh, so from a product manager perspective at a vendor, um, open source is simply a great source of uh, free, high quality, if you pick the right one, components. So think about... Open source, that's the first step. There will be many more, but the first step is a free source of quality components. View the open source project as a kind of supplier with its own challenges, but the clear benefit of it's free. Um, we can talk about licenses if you want, because that's usually what people worry about first. But uh, we can also talk about Further steps, yes. Yeah, I think maybe start off with 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 again give a give a brief introduction to people that that, that don't know mm -hmm. about 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 open source about open source licensing and maybe what they need to be you know what they need to be careful of when they when they're starting out. You know, if you're a startup and yep. you you're just getting into this, you know, what do you need to be you know what do you need to be careful of? Yes, so that's an important point. Um, so open source software is really just software. And it becomes open source software if you get it under an open source license, which is the software license. Now, it's a special kind of license which gives you rights and puts on you obligations. So the rights are the good thing. You get the software, you can use it for free, you get the source code, you can modify it, pass it on in a modified way, which is you can put it as a component into your products for free. That's the great part about open source licenses, the rights grant. The downside, if you will, is are uh, the obligations an open source license puts on you. And these obligations vary by license. The rights grant is always the same, or pretty much always the same. The obligations are vary by license. There are 80 licensees. And then in practical use, where people have modified these base licensees, are perhaps 5,000 commercially relevant license variants. And the obligations are from range from the benign to the problematic. Uh, benign is, for example, the attribution obligation. The attribution obligation is an, uh, is an obligation where you just have to say you're using this open source component. So if you wonder, um, turn to your favorite Android device <laughs> and take a look at the legal notices. In these legal notices, you will find the open source 
license information, the open source components that are currently doing their job on your device. And on my Android device, the legal notices are 99% open source notices. Right. So all the classic legal notices just are small. Um, creating those can actually be a problem, but usually people say attribution is not a problem. Right. Uh, so as a software developer, channel, though, as, yeah. as a product manager, if you know you're using you know open source software, you need to make sure you d- you're clearly documenting you know which open source, source software you're using and make sure that's that that you you include that in your you know in your documentation and in your TLCs, right? Yes, best practice, best industry practice is to have a so-called open source program office. These are people that help all product developers have a good governance process in which it's very clear how it is decided which open source components are being used, which make it into products, and how the final product delivery looks like, including these legal notices. So yes, that needs to be a controlled or a defined process. And if you're a startup, yeah, that's probably landing on your desk, Mr. Product Manager right? <laughs> or Mrs. Product Manager. Yeah. Uh, I fear it's the engineering manager who gets it, but yes, it's ultimately the product manager's responsibility. So they will, they will um, worry about it. They can't do it uh, because um, that's what I just was trying to communicate with 99%. It's an endless list of notices. The Linux kernel has 50,000 files. In each file, there may, might be a different copyright notice. Collecting all of these just for fulfilling one obligation, the attribution obligation, giving credit just to fulfill that one, uh, means you generate huge amounts of text. Okay. So people try to automate it. It's not fully automatable yet. So most companies fail somewhere in delivering or doing this correctly. And that's why you quickly have that dedicated office, uh, open source program office whose job it is. Cool. Um, in the end, um, nobody cares that much unless you're the open source programmer who doesn't get credit. And the real challenge usually from a vendor's perspective is to keep so-called copyleft licensed code out of your product, right? So copyleft is another obligation, one which requires that If you put some open source component into your product and give that product to a customer, the customer gets a right by way of the copyleft obligation to ask for your source code. I'm simplifying, but uh, the idea is that um, you cannot lock in your own intellectual property, your own source code any longer if it's closely working with copyleft licensed code. So so what is copyleft? Explain that to the folks that don't know. Yeah, so it's an obligation in open source licenses. So some open source. So it's a word play on copyright. So yeah, so you've copyright and copyleft. So um, it's simply the idiosyncratic name for one particular obligation. It was indeed uh, a a word play from copyright, just called copyleft. That's its own name for it, and it requires that as you pass on said copyleft licensed code. So you've got the Linux kernel, it's copyleft licensed. You pass on the Linux kernel. Then if you modified the Linux kernel, you have to pass on your modifications to your customers as well. Okay. So first thing to realize is this is a vendor problem, not a user problem. Uh, If you're just using open source, you have no obligations like this. Uh, It's really for a vendor who distributes, that's how they call it, who passes on 
set open source component because, well, they want to save money and have a good component in the product. And so in general, vendors try to avoid all copyleft licensed uh, uh, components. And so I, I said a bit generically, copyleft licensed. Um, the main license which has a copyleft obligation is the, the new public license version two. Uh, so that's one specific open source license, but there are others as well. And in terms of licenses, you distinguish between permissive licenses, which don't have a copyleft obligation, weekly, and then strongly copyleft licenses. Vendors, if you're a product manager, you will certainly want to make sure, somewhat simplifying, but you will want to make sure that any open source code that ends up in your product as a component is has a permissive license and doesn't put a copyleft obligation on you. But sometimes you probably will will do that anyway, right? Uh, you no, you will clear. You will stay clear of copyleft uh, licensed code. You just okay. don't use it. Okay, that, that's the consequence of it. It um, the the terminology, the wording is these are fighting words uh, by the Free Software Foundation to free all software. Yeah, so the copyleft, so the original copyleft license, the GNU Public License Version Two was invented to free all software. No source code could be kept behind closed doors. That was the intention. So and as a vendor, you don't want that because you want to keep your usually some of your code uh, proprietary, obviously, and closed. Right. Uh, so, so cloud computing comes along and that starts to change the, 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 the dynamic somewhat, right? So, um, you know, when you when you into SaaS into a SaaS or, or or cloud model of computing, you need to think about open source a little bit uh, a little bit differently, right? Um, so there are multiple dimensions to this. So um, if you're simply providing a product in the cloud, so you're providing a product as a service, and there's no uh, open source strategy associated with it, so take I believe, um, also Google services, right? So they use open source inside, but Gmail itself is not open source. Um, so then you're just building your product from open source components. You will make sure that the licenses work. The main difference to a classic license sale where you're shipping a product to your customer's data center is that you can be a bit more relaxed on open source licenses. If you're building a cloud service and it's a closed source software then um, that you're servicing, then you can use all the permissive licenses like with a license, classic license sale. You can even use GPL version 2 copyleft license code because you're not shipping your code to customers. You're just servicing it up as, as a cloud service. So you can even stomach GPL version 2 licensed code, except that the free software movement recognized that, hey, the cloud is a way to, uh, to circumvent uh, our idea of freeing our software because now it runs on the vendor's cloud and they are not shipping software, so they are avoiding the copyleft obligation. Here I am, a user of this service, and they are not giving me the software. What on earth? 
So the Free Software Foundation invented yet another license, which uh, strengthens the copyleft clause to work in the cloud. So that license is called the AGPL, so the Afero GPL version 2. So it's the same idea like with the mm -hmm. GPL version 2 license or copyleft, except that it's not tied to your shipping code, but it's tied to using code through the web. So right. just by using a cloud service, if the cloud service uses AGPL version 3 licensed code, you have a right to ask for the source code. So that's when you go to Google and they made it public. They have a very strict requirement. Nobody ever in Google uses AGPL version 3 licensed code because then they would have to open source all their software. Right. Hmm? So, so Dave, so, I, yeah. I, yeah, well, maybe maybe audience, have you got any questions specifically around licensing for licensing for for, for Dirk at this stage? I, I do. Um, feel free to get someone in the audience if someone raises their hand. But Dirk, I guess um, I'd love to talk about MongoDB and the SSPL. I don't think you covered that one yet. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear about that license. I mean, I think I think it was created to prevent, similar to what you talked about, the AGPL. Right to mm -hmm. prevent a cloud service provider from kind of taking your stuff and running it, but but I'd, I'd love to hear more about the SSPL for MongoDB, who I think which I think was created by MongoDB. Yeah. Um, hi Dave. So um, this is quite a jump from what we were just discussing. So I need to explain a little. I deliberately chose Google, which does a lot of open source, but you wouldn't call them self, you wouldn't call them a commercial open source company. Um, they just provide services through the web, cloud services, build a lot on open source, but they don't have an, uh, that much of a commercial open source strategy like the example you just chose. So when you say MongoDB, you're talking about a particular kind of vendor, Mongo in this case, which has a commercial open source strategy of how they went to market, how they grew in their markets, and now at a maturing product, so MongoDB is clearly a maturing product. Uh, they have to play certain, or they are playing some some uh, complex licensing games. So we need to understand that we are not talking about vendors in general any longer right now, but that we are turning towards uh, commercial open source vendors, which um, are just a subset. Yeah? So, for example... Uh, Snowflake, I believe, data warehousing, cloud service does not is not a commercial open source company, but they just provide you a service uh, for data warehousing databases. And MongoDB, however, is a commercial, used to be a commercial open source vendor, which made their product available for free as open source, hoping to uh, onboard users or turn users into paying customers for their cloud service. So interrupt me because uh, this all needs a little bit uh, help me steer this here. But to understand where MongoDB is today with the SSPL license that you mentioned, we need to look at the history uh, again. When they were younger, didn't have that much traction or market penetration. Uh, they were much more open. They wanted to drive adoption by making their product available for free. That's the basic idea of going with a commercial open source strategy. Make it available for free. More people pick it up. Eventually, you find ways of converting them to customers. That's the strategy. 
So for that, you need an open source license because open source has goodwill. People trust open source. It sounds nice. And actually it is nice. So Mongo Groom uh, was very successful. Many others had the same strategy. And now Mongo was looking for more and more ways to convert users of the open source software that users would have to host themselves to get those users onto their commercial offering, the Atlas cloud database running MongoDB as a cloud service at scale. The value proposition is clear. Uh, Mongo can run its own database more cost-effectively, more secure, more reliable than you as a user could do it in your own data center. Um, so that is the value proposition and Mongo obviously did very well. So they have the revenue looks really good, except that um, here comes the commercial next stage in the commercial open source play over time. So in the beginning, you're totally open. Yeah? Everything's available for free. Over time, you keep things closed or you're not making everything open any longer. And specifically uh, with Mongo, it is the cloud complement. So uh, a single tenant, MongoDB, if you will, a user can operate themselves. For MongoDB, the company to be competitive or better than the user running it themselves, uh, they have to have closed source complementary software that operates many instances, multi-tenancy uh, of the database in the cloud. They don't make that available for free. So they have closed source code, proprietary code that makes the offering more cost-effective, simply a better deal for users so that they convert to paying customers. And that's the special source that MongoDB has that it doesn't make available for free so that no competitor can pick it up. And now come the hyperscalers. Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, Azure, Google GCP, and so forth. These folks, and that's a general threat to all of these commercial open source companies who make their product available for free to drive adoption in the market. These hyperscalers have a separate, a different way of operating the open source software at scale with quality of service, high quality of service and all the properties that users want so you can convert them to customers, um, which is they have an excellent infrastructure in place already. So AWS can operate MongoDB or could operate MongoDB um, if they wanted to um, uh, with a quality of service that rivals Mongo's offering, even though the implementation is a different one. Mongo can take can program specialized code that makes it more efficient. AWS simply has infrastructure for spinning up and spinning down uh, parallel single tenant instances. And so um, they have a different technology, but they can compete possibly with MongoDB. And hence, Mongo doesn't like that. So I'm talking a long time. You interrupt me, right? Um, but uh, I hope you're still there. We're still yes. here. Um, <laughs> We're hanging on every word, Dirk. Hanging on every word. I'm, I'm so nervous about Clubhouse, you know, <laughs> that it hangs up on me again. Um, so now Mongo grew. Yeah, as, if, if you're in a growing market, things are great. But with market penetration and users asking for services, Amazon threatened to join the, or compete with uh, 
with uh, Mongo. I don't think they had a, they really serviced Mongo. They had a competing offering with the same API, if I'm not mistaken. But um, Mongo is just one of many companies right now which have this problem. So Mongo did not want Amazon's, uh, so AWS superior infrastructure to be a potential competitor. And so they needed to find a way to really stop Amazon from possibly using their open source code. So they changed the license uh, from open source to something called source available licenses. That is the SSPL, the server-side public license, Dave, that you mentioned. And that is not an open source license. It's basically a license that says, oh, it's like open source unless you want to compete with us and then you cannot use it. That's that simple. There are a couple of licenses like this and they obviously annoyed the open source community, but they are effective at keeping AWS from using uh, using the software. It is so, important. So to your question yeah. for you, you made a, a kind of bright line distinction there that mm-hmm. that SSPL is not an open source license. And I'm just curious. I, I always thought it kind of was. And, mm-hmm. and I'm curious what makes it not. What is the bright line it crossed mm-hmm. such that open source people don't think it's an open source license or, or it, they, they say it's not an open source license? Yeah. Um, so open source has a definition and yes. it's defined by the open source initiative. You can go to the uh, opensource.org website where you will find 10 criteria for a license uh, to fulfill, to, to be called an open source uh, license. And then there's a review board where you can submit your license to. The key that people run into, the key criterion is no restriction on use, no restriction on the field of use or the, the purpose of use, etc. So as soon as you say something, I want to I want to do good in the world so my software is open source but you can't use it for military purposes. As soon as you say that that's a restriction and it's not open source software any longer. It's actually a big movement right now uh to have such restrictions because people do want to restrict how people use software so they now invented a new term for it called ethical licenses which are not open source licenses because the moral value system of people is being embedded in the licensees, which makes it not open source any longer. Um, So there was some debate indeed whether you trying to wrangle the definition power away from the open source initiative didn't succeed, and I'm glad it didn't succeed. Um, I'm, I'm not making a moral judgment, by the way, on source available versus open source. Um, So it's their choice, and I think that Uh, Users need to be smart as well when they use commercial open source uh, to understand what they are doing because they are creating a dependency. Whenever you use open source, whether it's uh, commercial open source like MongoDB or something that's then called community open source because its ownership is shared broadly, even if you're using community open source, you're creating a dependency on something and that dependency needs management. Awesome. Thank you. A lot, a lot there. More, more, more than I thought. <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting where the industry is going uh, with these source available licenses. So Mongo is a famous example. They actually played very nicely. They submitted the SSPL to the open source initiative, got blown off, but uh, 
they were trying at least to get feedback and they I think they are playing fair. Um, Redis Labs, uh, Confluent, these are all leading Silicon Valley companies uh, which are doing this relicensing. It's important to understand you cannot retroactively change your licensing. So all it does is going forward, the license is now a source available license rather than an open source license. So users are not being screwed. Well, they're being screwed if they thought the promises everything would be free forever. But um, you can still use the software you are using right now. You can, the license will not get changed. But of course, you're cut off from the evolution and the continued development of the software by the original vendor. But that is open source. You can now start developing your own version of the software may not like it, <laughs> who suddenly wants to start developing the components of their product or so. Uh, but that's still the option you get from open source, which is much better than having no option. Got it. Back, back, back to you, Thomas. By the yeah. way, Thomas, can you make me a moderator just in case somebody gets disconnected? Yeah, you're asking me to do two things at once, Dave. Ask a question and, yeah, oh, and take the... You, so you ask the question while I figure out how to make you a moderator again. Okay, cool. Make make moderator. So any questions from the audience? We've stunned them into silence. We've stunned them into silence today. So I'm going to take... Licenses are such a fabulous topic. We've killed the room with, 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 with license talk, but let, let, let's take it back. I was interested... Yeah. Let's take it back a little yeah. bit, and, and and again, let's go back to your to your your product manager. You know, in a you know, you're in a startup. You 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 kicking off. You kicking off building. You you kicking off building something. There is there's consuming other people's. So there's consuming other people's open source. Let's think of those as you mentioned as kind of like components that you consume. And but then there's also deciding yourself to 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 open source code that 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 you're that you're developing and, and to, you know, solicit uh, uh, contributions from, from, from a broader community. And that, that's very different from, from managing a product where, you know, basically your senior management come to you and say, hey, I've got a budget for, you, you know, I've got a budget for, and you've got a budget and you've got 10 engineers, you know, that's all you're going to get, go build it. Whereas in, you know, if you have, a, have, an, have an open source product where you're actually soliciting, you're soliciting external uh, contributors to your product. Surely, managing that product is quite is quite different because the the definition of constraints and how you manage that community around your product is is, is very different. Do you want to talk about a bit about that, Dirk? Um, happily so. So um, we are now looking at what we call community open source. So you are a vendor. There are some components you've been building, and the first question that the product manager has to ask themselves, are these components competitively differentiating? So are we selling more because of these components, these libraries we are developing here? And if you can say, no, 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 they are just a cost factor. We need it. We need to be able to print documents, but um, we are not selling more because we can print documents. That's a given. As soon as you do that, you should either be using an open source component for it, or if no such component exists, you should be open sourcing your code and share in the development costs of that component. So the key question for a product manager is always looking at some piece of code, some component. Is it competitively differentiating? 
then you should keep it closed and proprietary? Or is it really just a cost factor and best managed as a shared asset with other companies who have the same problem? So then you open source it. Now the problem becomes, oh, there are these other folks who also want to contribute. So how do we manage across multiple companies and also potential private people, natural people who have an interest in these components, open source components? How do we do product management for an open source component which doesn't really belong any one particular company or person any longer. That was my and question. That's really, yeah. yeah. And, and that's really, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> took me a bit to get there. Um, so that, that, that is the surprising thing. Uh, po folks don't. Um, there is no good product management in, in open source. Um, but rather they do something called scratching their own itch. So in open source, there's some piece of software that's good enough for your purposes, and then suddenly it isn't. Something is missing. There's nobody you can, usually nobody you can go to and tell, please add this feature for me. The answer of the project or of the open source project will usually be go do it yourself. So you have to scratch your own itch, meaning you have to develop that feature that you need yourself. And that's how open source mostly works. People contribute because there's something wrong from their perspective in open source. And so they contribute to it to fix that. Could be a small bug, could be a new feature. But there's no roadmap or no big vision, no prioritized product backlog that people consistently work off. Or at least scratching your own itch is the first step. And then if you have a love for that project and your manager doesn't look, maybe you're willing to take on extra work because someone asks for it. But in general, open source product management starts with people trying to add bug fixes and features because it's their problem and not because there's a roadmap, because usually there is no roadmap. So, so, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I'm going to come back to this, but we've 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 got a question from Vitaly. I'm going to bring him up, and and uh, 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 I'm conscious that we want to get a get get Vitaly's question. So let me, uh, uh, Vitaly, if you could unmute yourself and ask a question, that would be super. He's a regular guest on the show. So, Vitaly, what are you, what's your question? Hi, Vitaly. Hi, Dirk. Uh, thank you for the conversation so far. Uh, I just love the intersection of. Uh, of technical and all of the other topics that uh, are usually discussed. So my question is more about kind of some uh, business models uh, of open source and there are, you know, certain companies uh, like famously kind of, let's say, Red Hat historically and many companies adopted this model where their commercial offering is kind of some enterprise features uh, on top of the open source. And we now see now a new wave of companies that are, really um, their offering is kind of a cloud offering of the same open source. You mentioned Mongo, Databricks, and some and some others. And my question is, A, kind of, well, have I missed in the other, uh, other kind of commercialization strategies for open source? And what is kind of your assessment of kind of the pros and cons of uh, these approaches? Mm -hmm. So um, absolutely. Um, the cloud is the usual product from an open source perspective. Um, but let me uh, frame it 
Mosaksinki. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that uh, Red Hat is uh, not a good example for commercial open source. Uh, almost precisely, we have two categories of commercial open source. In the one category are classic vendors who choose an open source strategy like MongoDB, CockroachDB, uh, Redis Lab, and so forth. And the second category are the open source distributors like Red Hat or SUSE. The key difference is, this is really important to understand this, that the first category, Mongo, develops the software themselves and then choose an open source go-to-market strategy or in general open source strategy. Red Hat and SUSE, um, they use existing community open source. Their intellectual property is in how they put together as a Linux distribution, are 10,000, a large number of components, how they put them together in such a way that they work well, that they don't come down crashing because there's some misconfiguration and what have you. So the IP that a Linux distributor or any distributor owns is in between the crack, or is in the cracks between components. They don't own these components. Actually, they collaboratively develop with other people. But their IP is test suites, compatibility databases, regression tests, what have you, and then turning that into a commercial subscription service. So Mongo and so forth, uh, they develop the software themselves. And then they figure, oh, we've got to disrupt an incumbent. There's a, that's really hard here. So you need to do something disruptive. So we use an open source strategy. As soon as you make your product available for free as open source. The question is, what are customers supposed to pay for? What are they going to buy? So the key here for all of these, I call them single vendor open source firms because they want to be the single sole vendor providing services or products based on the open source. The key for them is to understand what's the complement? What is it that I'm not making available for free? And that users want to buy, which leverages or um, gets much more out of the open source version. And the most common answer is, oh, yeah, take the open source software and run it in the cloud for your customers. It's not the only one. So the famous, perhaps the best example for a complement that is not the cloud so much would be hardware. So Google has these uh, tensor processing units, specialized uh, specialized uh, hardware that runs their machine learning framework TensorFlow particularly well. So um, they make TensorFlow, the software, available for free as open source, and they make money off it by being a superior provider of services or just running uh, TensorFlow, not only because it's a cloud service, it's also a cloud service, but because they have that hardware. So the complement here is really efficient hardware uh, to, to run run the software. But in general, yes, it's the cloud. And so that's how you make money. You take a look at what's the single tenant, I'm simplifying with the single tenant, open source version available for free that users can operate themselves until they get tired of it and where you then provide a cloud service uh, that does it better, more efficiently, cheaper and so forth. So I gave you the general answer. Maybe you can can direct me a little bit more on, on where to get more specific? Yeah, the, the follow-up uh, the, the follow questions, and thank you, by the way, the, the Google example uh, is great with their TPUs. Uh, 
kind of the more uh, general is kind of what are some of these uh, kind of trade-offs that companies uh, choose when deciding on kind of one strategy versus another. Like, for example, um, in the first category of companies that they have kind of additional uh, enterprise services on top of uh, um, uh, on top of kind of the uh, enterprise uh, sorry, on top of the open source offering, then the product team always for every single feature has to think, okay, is this a feature that we put in the kind of core mm. open source offering or is that uh, a feature that we ask users to pay for, mm-hmm. right? But on the other hand, um, kind of in the saying everything is always open source and we just make money out of these kind of running this for you, then the question is, like, if the software is not that hard to run, then obviously uh, maybe you won't be able to monetize uh, this uh, very much and kind of more of uh, these examples of kind of things that people should uh, think about when they decide on kind of one monetization strategy versus another. Yeah, so that here's a good rule of thumb. You're pointing at something that by now we can call historical development called the open core model. So 10 years ago, when the cloud was not ubiquitous, um, people were still thinking a lot about license sales. So the way a product manager would look at an open source strategy, they would indeed have to do what you just said. So look at a new feature uh, and ask themselves, should we make this open source or should we withhold it? And then have a classic license sale of what is open source and then features that are not available as open source. So the product was cut in two, an open source core, which was made available as open source, but sometimes was limited, so much so in some cases that it got maligned and people would say, yeah, I don't want to use the word, but really didn't think this was good software. Um, And you would withhold enterprise features that customers needed. So the extreme example, (laughs) you will laugh hearing that someone tried to do that, is um, an old ERP system software, which was open source, really nicely done, very good software. And the company decided to not make... I think it's your dog barking there, Chief. And the dog is getting excited at what's coming, I guess. So seriously, <laughs> that company decided the company decided to not open source the upgrade scripts. So you would use that ERP software for free, and then came the next version. But to upgrade, you had to pay for the upgrade scripts because they were not available for free. So if you do that, be sure some of your users will be annoyed badly annoyed so that's why the open core model got a bad bad rap because a large part you cannot distinguish between free users who don't want to be paying customers and real paying customers so again that's why the cloud is so beautiful to a user it is apparent that operating a cloud costs money so nobody complains that you will be charged money if a vendor operates the software for you in the cloud, because it's obvious that they have costs that someone needs to pay for. The challenge is whether some of the extra software that the vendor writes to operate efficiently in the cloud should be open source or not. 
the product manager of the vendor clearly says, absolutely no, not open source, how we scale out the software, because if we were to open source, how we have an efficient cloud offering, then anyone could compete with us. But the good thing is most users, if they are a single tenant for the software in their own data center, don't care about multi-tenancy in the vendor's cloud. They just want to use the software. So uh, that old open core model annoyed a lot of people, and I think it's slowly fading away. Yeah, thank you uh, for the detailed answer. Thanks, Vitaly, for asking. Uh, looks like Thomas got the dog under control. Uh, I live in Germany, and dogs don't bark here. It's like illegal that they bark. So I was thinking it's not my dog. It's obviously somebody else's, and it's not my dog because I don't have a dog. dog. But um, it's <laughs> it's the first time I've heard a dog bark in this neighborhood, and hopefully the last time. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So back to you, Thomas. Do you want to yeah. So so question? unless there are any other other questions from the from the audience about the the glorious topic of open source, I. I I want to move the discussion for the last uh, 15 minutes or so to to a question I think that that you know Dirk and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about and we've been done some work together is you know what's the future of product manager education and you know how do we you know what's the role of universities in developing um uh developing product managers um uh Dirk I'll give you this opportunity to make a um a pitch for the for the course you're you're running at the moment the course at uh, in the US and also the one at at FAU uh, but then let's oh, yeah. talk a little Thank bit you. about about uh-huh. about you know how we train you know how we train and develop the next generation of product leaders mm. yeah won't won't come to much surprise here i guess that i also think product management is critically important um to vendor success um you wouldn't think so if you look at universities because product management is almost nowhere taught certainly not in computer science because computer science professors don't know sometimes in business school so i think there are a few courses so um thomas and i have been teaching a course on commercial open source that will actually start next week at uc university of california at santa cruz again and in winter at my home institution in, in germany um so um The UC Santa Cruz one actually is free, so you can uh, take a look at it if you like and join us there. So, But that's commercial open source, so product management is in there as part of product strategies and commercial specifically, commercial open source strategies. Before that, I taught a course on product management using teaching cases, so that would be strategic uh, product management, and I also teach a course on agile methods, so kind of technical product manager if you want to call a product owner in scrum that uh, is as part of that it's it's really hard because it's such a comprehensive uh, job and um, it's really hard because the teaching case based approach we took basically died of its own weight it was so popular that we couldn't handle all the students and grading grading individual insight takes a lot of work because well uh, all these students individually need to be graded so so, so um yeah mm-hmm. so how do you think we 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 solve this uh the, the, this problem you know this is such an important job we we all hear about how important product management is but yeah there are very few universities offering actual you know uh programs uh programs in 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 product management do you do you think it's something we should that 
universities should be developing like a you know one or two year master's program in product management that you can come into uh, you go get some work experience and then like an MBA but focus more on you know focus more on product do you think that's a, that's a way forward I'm unsure about that uh, on the one hand I think education is possible even though it's such a comprehensive job but I can tell you existing professors cannot teach it based on what experience are most professors don't haven't worked in industry so how how are they going to teach it um, I think if you even have a dead so but that doesn't I, stop I business thinking, schools that doesn't stop business schools I mean most <laughs> business schools professors haven't worked in business either but they do they lecture us on strategy so I'm convinced that that's that that's not yeah. unsolvable. So I would think that I would have thought have a few courses, not immediately a degree, but sure, a degree would be wonderful because it's such an important business function. I think it has to be project-based teaching. It has to be field project-based teaching even and has rather complex uh, feedback and learning uh, cycles. So send people out into a defined context where they can where they can try. I don't have a great solution. As you know, I tried the teaching case-based approach, kind of Harvard Business School type of teaching cases, um, but it's, it's really hard to teach it well. I think projects are always the way to go, and, uh, but it's hard to scale that. I mean, Thomas, maybe back to you. Do you have good ideas? How would you go about it? Um, I think there are two... There are two types of product management education. Um, um, one is taking people that have uh, a business education or business background and teaching them about the constraints and challenges of building software. Right? And the other one is when you, you have people that have an engineering background and, and need, need to develop the commercial acumen. So it's a, it's, it depends a little bit of where the, of where the, where the person is um, uh, where the person is coming from is what we need to do in terms of 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 of, of developing them. So um, I don't think there's one single education that you can create for a product manager, but I would think that there would be there would be uh, elective and programs that you could take from uh, you know somebody coming from an engineering perspective that would give them uh, that would help them understand uh, you know things like for instance you know stuff we've been talking about for like business canvases you know how to how to think about a business canvas how to think about a business case. Um, you know how to work with designers, how to work with um, um, you know how to work with sales and so on, and then from the you know people that are coming from a commercial background, um, then you know how do you work with engineering? How do you understand you know how do you actually understand the the physics and the and the practicalities of of, of building software? You know without without necessarily um, having to um, uh, write code. Um, I think the two elements of product management, you know, do you really need to, the question I often ask people is, you know, do you need to know how to write code to be a product manager? Yeah. That's a, yeah. Your perspective is very enlightened of, in terms of uh, life experience. I don't think it works in Germany or the mindset of students in Germany would have to change dramatically on this because in a German student, uh, goes to uni- gets high school degree, goes to university, goes to work, never returns to university. Your education idea, I think, is it's exactly right. Only works if people are bringing back their practical experience to a university setting. So I, I agree that would be fabulous if you have people 
who come back to university, bring their experience, and the university guides them in reflecting on that experience, mm-hmm. uh, getting new techniques that they could have used, would have done better, all of that. But students in Germany never return. Uh, so they get the bachelor and then they get the master because they're being told uh, a bachelor is not worth much, so you need to get a master and then they're done. Uh, so it's different in the U.S. where you have potentially a gap between bachelor and master. Uh, I wish that that maturity in terms of, yeah, let's alternate between education and execution, meaning going to university, going to work, going to university, going to work. Uh, people would do that more. Dave, what do you reckon? My, my take on the issue, Thomas, if I can weigh in. Uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, one, I, I think universities have trouble figuring out where to put it. Um, like, like, would it, like when I went to college, there, the uh, the engineering school didn't have a CS degree. If you wanted to major in computer science, you had to major in EECS. So you had, you know, electrical engineering, computer science. So the, ironically, the College of Letters and Science at Berkeley, the liberal arts college, did have a CS degree, but the engineering school didn't. So, and, and like, just speaking again of Berkeley, because I'm somewhat familiar with it, you know, the data science degrees, I think, are in the School of Information, which was formerly the School of Library Science. So, so I think there's issues about where to put this stuff. I know Stanford is a design school. It's another thing I think people have trouble putting. In some ways, it reminds me of industrial engineering. I always thought that was kind of the most practical form of engineering. But, but I, I, if you ask me where to put a, you know, a, a bachelor's of product management, and I haven't researched this topic, but, but I don't know where I'd put it. And, and that certainly doesn't help it happen. One practical piece of advice, if you're just trying to train people mid-career or get a standard for your company, just say you're building a bigger team. I, I relied on an organization called the Pragmatic Institute. Uh, back when I was at Business Objects, they were originally called Pragmatic Marketing, and they focused on product marketing training, but now they focused on product management training as well Um, because, look, way back in the day, there was was a less bright line between those two disciplines. So um, that's my take. Yeah. Do you think a bachelor in product management is even possible? I find that it's really hard in very technical products to not have a strong engineering background. I can't see a master in product management. I'm not sure about a bachelor in product management because I would assume you need to know the domain first and then become a product manager for it. Yeah, this is the backwards and forwards debate about whether, whether you know, the importance of domain knowledge. So, um, yeah, do you, you know, are you able to take somebody and, you know, from, from domain A and move them across into domain B and as a as a as a product manager, you know, you can do that in project management, for instance. You know, um, uh, somebody who's managed complex projects in in um, construction is probably going to also be able to manage, um, uh, you know, um, complex projects in government or in some other, you know, related uh, related discipline because the the methodology behind behind um, large scale project management are, are quite well. Well defined. One of the best project managers I ever worked with on software on an SAP implementation was a uh, was somebody who'd who'd worked on building uh, sports stadiums, um, and he was a, a brilliant product manager because he you know could see the critical path of the project you know long before anyone else could could see it and understood the discipline of of of, of project management. I think we're still battling to find out to define what uh, what product management uh, what product management is and. I think right now, like you said, Dave, uh, the folks you talk about, I think things like Mind the Product uh, are also doing great, great work in, in educating people about, about uh, product management. But 
you know, if I think about, you know, I think I think for me, what's going to change is is the and this is a bit long term, but the you know the, the MBA was designed, you know, designed for for the likes of General Electric. You know, those were the those were the organisations and and to a lesser extent the consulting firms that drove um, you know that that drove the MBA wave. And um, if I'm a betting person, I think the the shortage of of, of product managers and the um, you know the emerging discipline of product management will drive uh, a similar innovation in in from from the um, uh, from the business schools, and it will be companies like the 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 Facebooks and the Googles and so on of this world that will that will demand you know more and more product management related education from those from those uh, institutions, and I think those institutions will start to respond. Um, I think Car- Carnegie Mellon um, started up a. a, a very interesting product management uh, uh, masters uh, masters recently, and I think there'll there'll be more of that. But um, I think we've got a long way to go. You know, I'm conscious we're about we're about top of time here. So 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 any final questions for 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 Dirk? Otherwise, we're going to do I'm going to do the usual wrap things up. And and uh, any last questions for Dirk from the audience? I'm going to take that as a no. Dave, any last questions from you? Uh, no, just uh, great having you, Dirk. Thank, thanks for the education. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. Thanks, Dirk, thanks for thanks very very much, and uh-huh. I will I will publish this up in the next day or so on the on the um, on the podcast, and you guys will be able to listen to it. So as usual, I'm going to end with a special effect, and as usual, it is an applause. Thanks, Dirk, and thanks, Dave. <laughs> I'm bathing in it. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dirk. I'll I'll give you a call later. All right. Thanks very much, Dirk. All right. Cheers now. Bye-bye.